Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. Uh, my next guest is a gentleman whose work I came across as a, as a young man listening to my parents' record collection and uh, the album called Beyond the Fringe. And it was an ensemble in which he first uh, made a, a big entree into the world of show business. Since then, he's become one of the most compelling and interesting of writers from London. His plays and work fill the screens, the video stores, the radio audiences, and the bookshelves. He has a collection of his memoirs and writings and diaries called Writing Home. Some of his screenplays include Private Function, Madness of King George, based on his play, and also Prick Up Your Ears, the story of Joe Orton, and some of his other uh, plays that he's done for television include Me, I'm Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Afternoon Off, An Englishman Abroad. He had a, a prose piece called uh, Hymn with music by George Fenton that was performed in honor of hymns that he learned as a boy in Leeds and the uh, violin, he said, my father never managed to teach me. Will you please welcome a man who is sometimes ambivalent about his writing, but for which I'm never ambivalent about reading it. Will you please welcome Alan Bennett to West Coast Live. Thank you very much for walking up the street to be with us. No, it's not very far. It's only about 200 yards. Hmm. One of the uh, most famous uh, aspects of your particular street is the story you told about the lady in the van, the woman who came and parked in your driveway with your van. It became, uh, not only was it the story of a woman's life, but it, in literary terms, it was uh, kind of an extended essay that you wrote. It became later a play on stage with Maggie Smith playing the, the lady. Um, is there a comfort level for you in turning real-life experiences and people's lives into, uh, into literature? Well, I never thought I would be doing that with her. She was, uh, uh, she was there for... Well, the situation was that she lived in the street in a van, and then the council uh, uh, introduced pass parking restrictions, and they said she was going to have to move on. And I, I've got a very tiny garden, and I said, well, you can bring the van into the garden. Uh, until you decide what you're going to do. And I was thinking it would be about three months. Well, it turned out to be 15 years. Um, uh, and I never wrote about her or mentioned her in anything I wrote during that time. And then she died um, in um, 1989. Uh, and I found out more about her in the six months after she died than I'd done in the whole of the 15 years she was there. Uh, and uh, that partly made me want to write about her, that, uh, that I realized she had a story to tell, and in, in some ways it had a far more interesting and eventful life than I'd had. Uh, and, uh, and so I thought it was worthwhile sitting down. I keep a diary, and, um, and she was, uh, and I work in a bay window, and she was just in my line of vision, so, uh, uh, just as De uh, Jenny Disky stares at things, I mean, I stare, I mean, I, she, I was always aware when she was coming in and out, and, uh, and so uh, I had a lot of the material, such as it was, ready when, when I decided to write about her. And you've also written about other people who inhabit your neighborhood. There was a, 
a man who would regularly come by. You described him as looking like a medieval saint. And he was also somebody that, uh, and, and you wrote a letter to who you thought his wife was, but it turned out to have been his dead mother. That's right. Uh, the, uh, he was a man, a nice man called John Leather, who, uh, who lived over in Primrose Hill, and he used to come by uh, with, uh, he always had a sack on his back in a rather Boonwell-like way. And, uh, and he had an amulet round his neck and uh, with, I think, a sun on it. And he used to stop and hold the, the amulet up to the sun. Uh, and I took it, I mean, I, I don't know what he was doing, but I took it that he was somehow blessing the house. Uh, he maybe was doing the exact opposite, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> uh, he, uh, the, it, it, it was more, used to be more full of characters did, uh, did Camden Town, Prim Primrose Hill, than, than it is now. Uh, it's now, uh, particularly Primrose Hill, has become much more um, uh, gentrified and much more ordinary. I mean, people like that can't afford to live there anymore. Uh, so in that sense, it's a less interesting neighbourhood than it was when I first came here, which is about 40 years ago now. When you, when you first came here, it was uh, truly on the outskirts. It was probably what I would equate to the, the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco. Uh, a lot of buildings were run down on Kempton, and people with money were able to move in and in part spruce it up. But there is still an element and I, and I, of... of that 1960s in the Haight-Ashbury, and still walking around Camden Town, it still seems one that you can find the eccentric character in. Well, there are times when you come home and you think, oh, I wish I could just see one sane person. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, I, I suppose I've been here too long, really. I, it's, it's a mistake to be able to remember what it, what it used to be like, really. Um, you, uh, you spend part of your time in, in Yorkshire. You're from the North Country. Um, do you find that the move to London and, and your 40 years here, even though you would go back to Yorkshire, uh, uh, would replenish your writing? Is, is Yorkshire a source of inspiration still for you? I think uh, it's a source of inspiration in the sense it's where my childhood was spent. And I really, I didn't uh, leave uh, Leeds, which is where I was brought up, until I was um, about 25. Uh, and so uh, all my memories of a as a child are of, of, uh, of the North. And, and um, you do write out of your own childhood. I mean, and it lasts, I mean uh, Flannery O'Connor said that if you, if you can survive your childhood, you've got enough material to last you for the rest of your life. And, uh, and that's certainly true that you, you, um, you do write out of your childhood. The trouble with me is that I write about, uh, I write uh, of, the, of the people I remember and make them talk in the way that I remember. And of course now um, everybody's moved on and I think the people I write about probably are very old fashioned from, uh, from uh, the point of view of somebody uh, contemporaries in, in Leeds. Um, but uh, it's, uh, I can't write in Yorkshire, I can't write in the village where I live because it's too quiet. I have to have a bit more going off, which, you know, is certainly true of Camden Town. The, um, when you uh, talk about writing about some of those characters, there, there's also a, a sense of an England that you sometimes write about, that it has distinctively changed, but there is still the very, you know, great hint of... of some of the fastidiousness, the garden party element, the um, uh, a kind of English way of life somewhere in the 1950s, yet, say for instance, in some of your monologues of talking heads, uh, 
the influence of what's called Asianness or the Asian world, particularly India, will change English lives in, in ways that uh, are quite profound. Well, the, the one story, um, Bed Among the Lentils, about a vicar's wife who, uh, who uh, is, an, uh, you gradually realize in the course of the monologue that she's an alcoholic. Um, and uh, she takes the only place which is open uh, after hours, as it were, to buy drink is uh, an Asian grocer's. And she, she goes to this Asian grocer's on a regular basis and then gradually starts to have an affair with the, uh, with the uh, Asian shopkeeper. Um, and, and it's two very, very different worlds meeting. And it ends uh, sadly in a way, but uh, um, I, don't, I don't quite know where that came from, really. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, uh, you're always told that characters when you're writing them, to take hold of of the story and and uh, and lead it the way they want to do. That very seldom happens to me, but it did happen in that case that she uh, she more or less dictated where the story went. And as played by Maggie Smith, it was wonderfully um, uh, touching, and uh, and uh, the end scene particularly is, is one of the best things I think she's ever done. As a writer reads your work. Uh, we come across, uh, we sort of understand what's going on with the character in a way, and the character in the course of the piece only then takes the length of the piece to discover it, him or herself. Um, what is it about letting the reader in early on that, that you like to do? Um, well, I, I, mean, I think you, if you tell everybody everything, about, or if you, if you put them in the picture right at the start, then you... You, you, people aren't interested. That you actually, uh, you need to, to. I mean, this is this is just an elementary drama, really. I mean, that you you start off with people not knowing what's happening, uh, and uh, not really understanding where they are, and then if you do it right, I suppose then they you gradually fill them in, and and. Uh, and then they get into the swing of it. And uh, I mean, um, that's true. Uh, I mean, wonderfully true in, um, in David Mamet's uh, Glengarry Glen Ross, where you start off and you've absolutely no idea what's happening. You can't tell what they're saying. Uh, and you think you'll never get the hang of this. Then gradually you, get in, you, you begin to get the hang of the language and you gradually find out where you are. And it's a most wonderful play for that reason. And, uh, and, and uh, if, if one can do that as a, as a dramatist, then uh, one's very lucky. In, in, in your new book, you have three novellas and one of them involves a podiatrist. And as I recall, there is a podiatrist in private function. Is there something about podiatry that seems good material. Well, because we call them chiropodists. Uh, I, I, I don't know, the, I suppose it was that um, uh, my, when uh, uh, my father died in 1974 and, and I had to look after my mother for a while and um, the chiropodist used to, was an itinerant chiropodist, he used to come to the house and um, uh, my mother's quite elderly, but he and he used to spread a newspaper out and uh, and do her feet in front of the fire, and it did seem to me a very um, intimate uh, activity and and a very 
intimate relationship, but at the same time quite a formal thing. And, uh, and I think that's where that came from. It just struck me as very peculiar. Uh, it's made, uh, well, in, in private function, it's made quite farcical uh, with bits of toenail hitting the various or ornaments in the room. Um, and the other one is much more, um, is a rather darker piece. Um, but uh, uh, I don't know, well, I don't know why I find podiatrists or chiropodists yeah. funny, but I do. The, uh, you also have another uh, character in, in the laying of hands, laying on of hands uh, story, which mm -hmm. begins the collection, uh, uh, and it's uh, a masseuse. Um, and there's also a very sort of intimate body connection, uh, which can have its formality or its informality, depending on the on the context. Uh, yes, I think I think that that story, laying on of hands, really. Uh, it, uh, it's about a memorial service for this, uh, this uh, masseur. And um, the, there is something peculiar. I have to go to a lot of memorial services as I get older. Uh, and uh, the first time I realized there was something peculiar about them was at um, Kenneth Tynan's memorial service, which is 20 years ago now. But um, it was held at... Um, what is ironically the Actors Church in London, the St. Paul's Covent Garden, and it has the worst acoustics of any church I've ever been in. You cannot hear a word. Um, and, um, and various people kept coming to the microphone and giving their uh, reminiscences about Ken Tynan, and you couldn't hear a thing. And, um, and it got worse and worse, and finally, um, Penelope Gilliard, who was, I think, at that time, the film critic of The New Yorker, um, came to the microphone and, and there was, it was as if a mouse was at the microphone, you couldn't hear a thing. Uh, and then people at the back uh, had lost patience and they started uh, calling out and saying, louder, louder, can't hear, can't hear, speak up. Um, and of course, in a, in a normal service in a church, that would be absolutely unthinkable that anybody would do that. But because, of course, it was a memorial service where there was no um, uh, strict form of proceeding, uh, people felt that, that there were no rules, so they could, they could behave badly. And, uh, and it was at that time I realized that you, if you, you could write something about a memorial service. And in this, in this particular case, in the laying on of hands, um, the vicar makes the mistake of uh, asking the audience for their reminiscences of the dead man, uh, and it touches off a flood of reminiscence until finally somebody stands up and said, um, I wonder whether I could share some thoughts with you about what he was like in bed. <laughs> and of course then the whole thing <laughs> descends into farce. Mm. Yes, and, I, it, and absolutely the masseur, not a masseuse, I, I want to no, clarify. No, very definitely a masseur, yes. And the, um, uh, the, the idea that, uh, when you're telling the story about Kenneth Tynan's memorial service, it also reminded me that there were probably a lot of people from the theater there who wanted somebody to project further yeah, to the back. Absolutely, oh. absolutely. And no, Joan, I think uh, Joan Littlewood was at the back, and she sent a note uh, down to the, to the front and, and asked people to pass it down, and this note said, project. Uh, and this was quite ironic in a way because Joan Littlewoody, uh, project is the most old-fashioned bit of stage direction you could ever give anybody and she was really at that time in the real avant-garde of the theatre and that she was delivering this piece of traditional advice was quite funny. <laughs> There's a, um, a, a writer in the, in the United States, uh, 
also actor, Wallace Shawn, Wallace Shawn, William Shawn's son, you may know him, uh, who is very funny, very comic, um, but when he writes some of his plays, they are some of the darkest, broodingest, closeted kind of pieces where he will say, I will go in and I just have no idea where this, this comes from. And your, your big public career began with Beyond the Fringe, great comedy, uh, hilarious social comment and satire, and the satire, the gentle comedy has continued, but you've commented yourself that your writing has become much darker over years. I got the sense that it would almost frighten you. Well, it gets bleaker and bleaker, and you actually feel it gets so bleak you don't want to visit it on the public. Really. <laughs> but uh, and it's not deliberate. You just find that uh, you start off wanting to write something light-hearted, and, uh, and then it nosedives, and, uh, and you've more or less got to go with it, but it does, uh, it does get quite black. Um, but... Uh, I always have difficulty thinking of plots. I've always had that problem. And uh, I can write quite chirpy dialogue, but as soon as I think of a plot, it tends to be on the dark side nowadays. Well, chirpy dialogue has been the success also of, of your teleplays, uh, The Madness of King George. Uh, what, what sort of work did you do for Prick Up Your Ears that, that was really a, um, a surprise to you? Uh, I didn't really like doing pickup periods. It was a lot. Of, uh, we went through so many versions because so, nobody wanted to buy the script, uh, and uh, the various film companies fiddled, you know, messed about with it. Then said, "Oh, you want to do this, this, and this," and you'd, you'd alter it to suit them, and then they'd withdraw. And, and so, by the time it got made, I was just relieved that it was finished with, really. Um, but uh, it's. Um, uh, it's it's quite a, I think quite a coy film in the sense that it's not I think if it were made now it would be much more um, um, outrageous and specific. It's uh, it's quite a literary film I think about of a, of a subject which is I mean a pretty terrible ending with obviously with Joe Orton's murder. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm, I uh, I wouldn't particularly want to do anything like that again. I don't think. What about your adaptation of Wind of the Willows? Does that have uh, Wind in the Willows? Did that have a similar fate? Uh, oh no, that that was uh, pure joy, really. Uh, that was um, at the National Theatre, and uh, and uh, and uh, Nicholas Heitner, uh, who's now the director of the National Theatre, asked me to do it, and um, and uh, and I. I started off, and, uh, and I, I do have a very limited theatrical imagination. I, I, uh, I and I kept ringing him up, saying, "I'm not sure what to do now. Uh, there's a horse, and and how do you put a horse on the stage?" He said, "Oh, just write it as horse. Just put horse down, and I'll do the rest." And so eventually, that's how we did it. I just did a literal version of it and, and when the train came on I put a train comes on and uh, and he did manage to uh, to turn this into a, a wonderful theatrical experience um, and he's a joy to work with because he's got a much more um, um, well I, 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 I if I say it's a vulgar streak I don't, I'm not I don't mean that in a disparaging way he's he's got a real good showbiz streak which I don't have I think and uh, and so I've uh, he supplements my uh, deficiencies. Do you do you find so, uh, several of your books and your uh, stories are on audio tape? 
Uh, you've read many of them, Father, Father, Burning Bright, I, th I think the collection laying out of hands uh, as well. Is there a difference for you hearing your works then read aloud and reading them on the page, or, or, or do you think of how the stories will be heard? Do you, do you want them to be heard in that way? I mean, if you saw me working, I, I, uh, I mean, Jenny Disky was talking about watching somebody working. I wouldn't have anybody watching me working because they would think I was mad. And it's, it, and it's, I say the stuff aloud and say the lines and, uh, and repeat it and, and walk up and down the room sometimes. Uh, and so I do hear it. Uh, and I think that's maybe the difference between having been an actor or being an actor before I was a writer, that you do actually... Um, have a sense of what a line is going to sound like. Uh, and uh, um, I've never heard anybody else read any of my stories, so I don't know what what they would uh, would read them like. Um, but uh, uh, I do I do hear it in my own voice, I suppose. Um, but uh, I suppose when I've gone, then maybe somebody else will do it. You know? was, was there a turning point when you were growing up where you said, I'm going to be comfortable on the stage, or you realized that uh, being an actor and, and being a writer were ways that you could make your way through life? Um, I started, I, I had no thoughts of being an actor. I, I was at Oxford and I, uh, and I read medieval history and then I stayed on at Oxford and taught medieval history. Uh, and I, I was in a, quite a uh, small, quite a cosy college, Exeter, and uh, they used to have concerts at the end of each term, just just for people in college, and um, and so the audience were all people that you knew, a very sort of intimate atmosphere. And I used to, I started off doing sketches for these concerts, and that was the first time I really realised I could make people laugh and like doing it. Uh, and out of the materials, some of the material I used to do then, uh, I used some of that in Beyond the Fringe, and that's how that happened. But it was it was never a, a, an objective, as it were, in my life. It, it came in entirely by accident. I wouldn't have made a good historian, really, I, so it's a good job it did, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. is, the is the university life a, a, a beneficial and in, in formative ways, does it do harm to people? Well, it didn't do any harm to me, I don't think. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it used to be much more uh, cloistered than it is now. I mean, and, and, and you used to have dons there who knew very little of the world outside um, the Oxford and Cambridge, which was the residential universities. Um, but, um, uh, I think nowadays it's it's very different from that, but uh, uh, it's not a not a. I think it can be quite a stunting place. I wouldn't I wouldn't particularly a stunting place. Yes, I would have thought. I wouldn't really want to. Uh, I mean, it produces wonderfully uh, eccentric characters. I mean, there's. I mean, this is going back to the 18th century, but there was a there was a president of Maud. I was attached for a time at, to Magdalen College. And there was a president of Magdalen in the 18th century who, who was president most of his life and died at the age of 90-odd and uh, was called Dr. Routh. And uh, when he was in his 90s, one of the fellows um, uh, committed suicide. And 
the other fellows were very, very nervous about telling him about what, what had happened in case the shock carried him off. Uh, and uh, eventually one of the younger fellows was deputed to go and tell him and, and he... Uh, uh, and he, he went in great trepidation and said, uh, President, um, I have to tell you that um, uh, one of the fellows has hanged himself. And Ralph said, don't tell me, I want to guess. <laughs> that, that's a true story or a no, story? No, that is a true story. No, that's absolutely a true story. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, we have a number of bicyclists in our audience in, in, in the United States. and. You regularly bicycle around. Yes, I uh, bike tonight. And bike. Any, any tips for uh, being a bicyclist in London? I don't know. There's a great controversy going on at the moment because the, the, uh, the, the, some European director, all the good things that are happening in English law come from Europe now. <laughs> uh, and well, there's a European directive that uh, if there's any accident between a car and a cyclist, the car is deemed to be blameworthy simply because it's a much more powerful machine and uh, and that this is going to put 50 pounds a year on the insurance of all the motorists and of course there's, there's a great outcry about this um, uh, and there's also great uh, rouse about cyclists going on the pavement um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know what it's like in America. I mean, I've, I, in New York uh, uh, Cyclists are much more uh, daredevil and hair-raising than they are here. Um, but uh, the more protection there is for cyclists, the more I'm in favor of it, really. Do you, do you wear one of those masks that I've seen cyclists wearing here that for breathing in the, in the smoggy air? No, I don't, because I don't, I don't do it as consistently as that. But uh, I wear a helmet, which I look, look a real fool in. But uh, <laughs> I wish they'd devise a helmet which made you look a bit less of a twerp. But what, what would that be? Would it be the color, the shape of it? Uh, it's got a point on the back, yeah. and <laughs> I don't think I'm the sort of person with a, to have a helmet with a point on the back. You, you don't wear some of that skin-tight uh, kind of uh, spandex with uh, look, makes you look like an NASCAR race driver? No, I, uh, I just wear a sports coat and flannels, which is what I always wear. And, and the dashing helmet? Yeah. There was a, uh, one, one of your entries in your, in your diary talked about how you, uh, you saw a beautiful moon one night, but you feared that you would have to go home and write about it so that you could enjoy it. Mm. And I got the idea that, that one of the ways you perceive the world and thus transmit it back to us is, is it takes you a while to look at it and you figure out what it means to you and then you interpret it both to yourself and then to your readers. Um, it's quite a complicated question, is that? Um, I first realized I wanted to write um, in, in, the, in such a uh, hackneyed and, 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 as it were, uh, traditional way that I'm almost ashamed to admit it, but, I, but it, it was, uh, I, living in Leeds, um, it was at that time in the 50s, was a very uh, smoky and um, uh, polluted place, but this meant that you had the most wonderful sunsets. So that uh, I used to walk a lot about the city and uh, and looking at these sunsets and feel somehow that this I wanted to 
write down what I saw or write down what I felt about what I saw. But, but then when I came to do it, it was the most uh, oh, fool, a tripe, really, you know, and, and so, such foolish poetic stuff. Um, and similarly, the moon. Um, and, and, uh, and so I feel slightly sh ashamed of that, but that's really what, what made me think about writing, I think, uh, in, in that rather uh, poetic, in inverted commas, way. And then your your gift for dialogue, that chirpy dialogue that you would you would say, you you must pick up a lot even when you're just walking down the street. Or you hear fragments of speech, lines, suggestions uh, of a bit of dialogue, or is it all within your imagination? A lot of it, I think, comes as I said before from childhood. It's it's stuff that you. I, my I was brought up in a in a. Uh, family situation, which was the, there were mainly women. My mother had three, had two sisters who were both very talkative, uh, and my grandma. Uh, and my father was quite uh, taciturn, and uh, and so I used to hear a lot of, of women talking. And I can always, I think, I can write women's dialogue uh, still quite well simply because of that, because I was listening when I wasn't aware I was listening, which is what, how it's laid down, I think. Um, and I do, I do listen to people, but on the other hand, you see, I've lived in London for 40 years, uh, next to the street market in Camden Town. I wouldn't be able to reproduce the dialogue of the traders in the street market, because it, uh, that somehow is, uh, if, if I'd heard it when I was a child, I would have been able to, but I can't, but uh, hearing it as an adult, it doesn't, doesn't um, percolate. I can, I can do, um, academic dialogue, because again, that, that occurred in my life when I was quite young. But uh, I think the, the, the northern stuff all comes from when I was a child. The, uh, thank you very much for coming and talking with us. And uh, our time is up here. And the, um, uh, if, if you were to say uh, a sentence about Beyond the Fringe for people who are just being coming into their 20s now to listen for, is there a... Is there some routine, routine that uh, you're particularly fond of looking back through the years? I wouldn't be able to remember it. I mean, I did, the thing I used to do was the most popular one of my sketches was a sermon, an Anglican sermon. I couldn't remember it now, although I've done it thousands of times. Uh, but um, no, the thing I remember most are, are probably Peter Cook's uh, sketches. Of course, he uh, now dead. And, and also Dudley Moore's as well, the, the endless Beethoven piece, which he couldn't finish. That was wonderful. Mm. Do you, um, uh, well, we're out of time here. And uh, anyway, uh, thank you very much. And uh, pleasure to meet you. And thank you for your time. Alan Bennett here thank on board. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Are, you, are you still mistaken for David Hockney? Yes, oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.